Good evening. Turn, if you would, tonight to 2 Corinthians 13. I don't know if y'all would have paid any attention to this or not. I don't know why I did tonight, but that song that we just sang, Take Time to Be Holy and Then Yield Not to Temptation, the youngest the song could be, Take Time to Be Holy, the youngest it could be is 129 years old, and the youngest yield not to temptation could be is 112 years old. I don't know about you, but that struck me tonight because 129 years ago, you know what the songwriter was encouraging people to do? Take time to be holy. Can you imagine if they got to live in what we live in today, what they would think? You, know, you go back to 19 or 1890 and what it must look like today compared to then. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. kind of reminds us that human nature doesn't change a whole lot, does it? It does not, and uh, that kind of ties into a portion of where we're headed tonight. So 2 Corinthians 13 is where we're going to be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, it is good to be in your house tonight. It's good to have this time to slip away. It's, time, it's good to have this uh, facility provided for us, and we're just thankful for your many blessings in our lives. I do pray that you would bless this time in your word this evening, that you'd use it to speak to our hearts. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do want to begin tonight by reminding us of what we talked about last week because there is a connection to the two messages as we try to keep the flow of this going and the context of it in mind. And so I want to remind us that last week we looked where Paul said this in verse number 8. He said, We can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. And one of the things I pointed out that Paul was stating in that verse is this, is that Paul was making it known to the believers in Corinth that he did not have the authority to stand in opposition to the word of God. The only thing that Paul had the right to do as an apostle was to preach to the people what God had already declared in his word or had already revealed and made known. And so I tried to remind us that as children of God, you and I do not have a right to oppose or to stand in opposition to the word of God. The only thing that we can do is say this is what God's word says and then let people deal with it however they choose to. That is the only right that we have as God's people. Is that fair to say? Amen. All right. Anyways, past that, Paul went on to explain what his wish was and what his wants were for the believers there in Corinth. We summarized it like this. He simply wanted to see them repent. He wanted them to fix what was wrong. He wanted them to avoid evil and do right. He just wanted them to fix what was wrong, repent, avoid evil, and do what is right. And so for the greater part of the message, I tried to show us that that should be our greatest desire for anyone that we come into contact with. Of all the things that we could want for them, of all the things that we could desire for them, our greatest desire should be that they would repent, make things right, avoid evil, and just live right and do right. And while that should be obvious, many times that escapes the child of God. We are worried about so many other things more than the spiritual things, and we've got to be reminded, and we have to be mindful of this, that in the end, there is nothing more important than a person's spiritual life. That is what matters more than anything else. So if we're not worried about their spiritual condition, their spiritual standing before God, 
then we are worried about something that is inferior to the greater picture and to the greater scheme of things. So we've got to keep that in mind. We have to be aware of that. So tonight as we move on, I want to begin the message by talking about a historical figure that is probably one of your favorites. I would suspect that as you think about historical figures, if you're ever talking about someone that you have a great admiration for and a great fondness of, I would suspect that at some point this name comes up in conversation, and that would be Sir Isaac Newton. Don't you love him? Now, I thought some of you might have that response. I think some of you are thinking, I've heard the name. Why do I know his name? How do I know that name? Well, he was born in 1642, so it was a few years ago. Uh, but he was a mathematician and a physicist. Two things that most of us aren't too worried about, right? Mathematics and physics. Nonetheless, it is Isaac Newton who worded this law that many of us are familiar with. Of course, this law would have been in effect long before he came on the scene, but he is the one who expressed it and takes credit or receives credit for it. The statement that he made is this, that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Some of us heard that in high school if you were awake. But it was Newton who said this, that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So in layman's terms, what does that mean? Well, it would mean this, that for every action that is performed, it produces some kind of a reaction. Meaning, you can't do anything without it causing something else to happen. Anytime any person or anything does something, there is going to be a response to that. That is an unalterable law. So for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, we might say it like this, anytime something is done, there will be a consequence for it. That's fair to say, right? Anytime something is done, there is going to be a consequence for it. Now, somebody may say, well, that sounds kind of negative. That, that sounds like we're, we're going to go down another negative road this evening, and you're going to preach against the consequences of sin. Well, there is a consequence to sin, right? But there are also consequences to right living and to right actions. And so I would say this tonight, that if that law is true, and it certainly seems to be, that with every action there is an equal and opposite reaction— then it seems to make sense to me that if everything I do carries a consequence with it, then why wouldn't I try my best to make sure that the consequences of my actions will always be consequences I anticipate with some kind of joy? Simply put, if I know there's going to be some kind of a reaction to what I do, then why don't I just decide to strive to do what's right? That makes sense, doesn't it? 
If something is going to happen based on what I do right now, then why don't I just decide let's make it a good reaction instead of a negative reaction? Now, as we think about that, tonight we're going to be in the last part of verse number 11. All right? And the last part of verse number 11 is where we're going to be for a little while. And remember that this is Paul writing to believers in Corinth who make up a church body. We understand this, right? That, that this was a church body that Paul was writing to. Do we agree with that? Okay, I want to make sure that we agree with this because here's what Paul is going to do. He's going to talk about some things that are possible by way of a reaction for the church body, but who will it be dependent upon? It will be dependent upon the members in that church. Okay, so, so there is something that is available to the church corporately, but here is what it will hinge on, and that is the members individually. So if the members do what they're supposed to do by way of action, it is going to create a reaction for the church family. And as the church family is benefited, guess what? So will the members individually be benefited. That's an important thought to give attention to once more. So notice what uh, Paul says in the last part of verse number 11. He says, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Now, I know that these are some words by way of just the individual words themselves. We're familiar with them. But I want us to work through this. I want us to walk through it very quickly so that we can understand this and and all be on the same page. Paul says of God that he is a God of love. That he is a God of love. So what does it mean whenever Paul says that he is a God of love? Well, it means this, that he is a God of affection. God is not some distant person or being who who has no feelings for someone or has no affection for someone. No, he, he says God is a God of love. He is a God of affection. And he is also a God, the word love means, to be goodwill or of goodwill, So God is a God of goodwill. Would we agree with this? That God desires good to happen to his children. Okay, so so God is a God of affection and he is a God of goodwill. It also means this, the word love does, just by way of a broad definition, it means for him to be kind or for him to have the attribute of kindness. So here is Paul speaking of God, and he says that he is a God of love. So that means he is a God of affection, he is a God of goodwill, and he is a God of kindness. He goes on to say that he is not just a God of love, but he is a God of peace. A God of peace. What does it mean to be a God of peace? It means this, to be calm or tranquil. It's the idea of quietness and rest. We've heard this before, right? This word peace is dealing with the idea of a calmness, a sense of tranquility, a quietness, and a rest. So in writing of who God is, Paul says that he is a God of love and he is a God of peace, 
which means he is a God of affection, of goodwill, of kindness, of calmness, tranquility, quietness, and rest. And he said of God to the believers of Corinth that he shall be with you. What does it mean to be with someone? It means to accompany them. It's the idea of being beside someone. So here is what Paul was saying to the believers of Corinth by way of a church body. He is saying this, that it is possible for you to know the presence of a loving and peaceful God. It is possible for you to know the presence of an affectionate God who wants good for you, who is kind, and it is possible for you to have the the accompaniment of God in your life, giving you a sense of quietness and calm and tranquility and rest. Paul says this is available to you. I want to ask you something tonight, and I'd like some kind of response, at least a nodding of the head, something verbal, a smile, just something to let me know what you think about what I'm about to ask you. To consider having the presence of God in your life. To know his love, to know his peace, to know his affection, his goodwill and his kindness, to know the peace and the calm and the tranquility that he can provide, is there anything that could sound much better to you than that? I mean, really, if we think about it, there's not much better than that as we go through this daily life. To know that the God of this world, the God who created me, to know that I can have such a closeness with him that he would be with me and accompany me through life, showing me his affection, showing me his goodwill, showing me his kindness, giving me quietness and calm and tranquility and rest in the midst of the crazy of life. I'm telling you, just for me personally, I don't know how it could get much better than that. But as good as that is, I think here's what we would have to admit tonight. Is that most people don't know what it's like to have that. Most people do not have a relationship with God in such a way that they could honestly suggest that they know the presence of God's love in their life. If we were to say to them, just the majority of people these days, if we were to say to them, do you really sense the presence of God's love in your life, his affection, his goodwill, and his kindness, here's what the majority of honest people would have to say. They would have to say, I I really don't know that to be real in my life. I believe in God, but he's more like a distant figure. He's more like some impersonal being that I can't be close to. They, They know of God, but for them to be able to say, that they walk with God and they know his presence in their lives, 
That's not something that most people can say these days. And to ask the average person today if they know the peace of God, the calmness of God, the tranquility of God, and the rest of God, most people don't seem to know that either these days. If you look at most people's lives, here's what you seem to find more times than not. Chaos, disorder, almost a franticness, a busyness, to the point that most people don't even seem to enjoy life. That's how most people live. Everything is so busy, everything is so frantic, everything is so chaotic, life is so disorderly. And if you were to say to them, do you really sense the calm and peace and tranquility and rest from God? I think they'd look at you almost like this. Can you not tell that we don't? And I'm just saying to us this evening... I don't think what we're dealing with in our culture today is anything new. I believe the specifics are different. But I think the same issues plaguing our culture today were plaguing Paul's culture in his day. I think if you could go back some 2,000 years ago and ask people, do you sense the love of God in your life? I think most of them would have said, no, not really. And if you ask them, do you sense the peace of God in your life? I think many of them would have said, no, not really. And, And here's what's sad. I think it's true, and I can't prove it, but I think it's true for many of those who would identify themselves as God's people. Are we hearing this? They claim to be saved. They claim to have a personal relationship with the Lord. But they don't really seem to sense the love of God in their lives. And they don't seem to really sense the peace of God in their lives. Why is that? Because you don't just stumble upon the love of God and the peace of God being with you on accident. See, to get the love of God and the peace of God to be with a person, here is what that is. It is a reaction to a person's action. God doesn't just one day decide, oh, you'll have my love and you'll have my peace and I'll be with you in a manner in which it is so real and so obvious and so undeniable. And I'm just going to give that to you in spite of how you live. No, no, to know the peace of God and the love of God, to know that he is with us in a real and genuine way, that is a byproduct that comes from one's actions. So tonight what I want us to do is this, is I want us to see what is required by action to receive this reaction. That in order to get this, this is what must be done. 
So notice in verse number 11 what Paul said. He said, finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect. Here is one of the steps required, one of the actions required to know the love and peace of God in our lives. Paul said you have to be perfect. Now, I know that we know this, so I'm not going to spend a long time on this. But whenever Paul says to be perfect, we know that he is not speaking of perfection in the sense of being without fault or without flaw. If that were the requirement, then no one would ever know the love and peace of God. We're all fallen individuals. We are all sinful creatures. And so that is not going to happen. So we understand that there is more to this word than just being free from any kind of error, free from any kind of flaw. So what is it talking about? It is talking about this, a maturity in one's spiritual life. A maturity in one's spiritual life. So in order for there to be a recognizable presence of the love and peace of God in a church's life, listen, which would then be manifest in the believer's life, there must be some spiritual maturity. There has to be spiritual maturity. Now, now somebody says, okay, well, how is that spiritual maturity obtained? How is that acquired? Well, the word perfection here, or to be perfect, also has this associated with it. It's the idea of mending or repairing what is broken or not right. I don't know if you see the connection between that thought and what we dealt with last week, but, but I want us to see this, that in order for spiritual maturity to take place... There has to be a willingness to mend or repair or to fix what we know is not right in our lives. Let's think about this just from a very simple, practical perspective. If a person knows this isn't right, whatever this may be, if a person knows that this is in violation to God's word, but they're not willing to change it, they're not willing to address it, they're not willing to fix it, they cannot expect the reaction to that action to be a known presence of the love and peace of God. It is impossible to live in rebellion to the Word of God, refusing to address what needs to be addressed, refusing to deal with what needs to be dealt with, and still know the presence of the love and peace of our Savior. Now, I, I want us to see this, that if a person chooses then to live in rebellion to the authority of God's word, what is unchangeable and what cannot be opposed by us, if a person chooses that for themselves individually, not only does it rob the, the, the person of the love and the peace, that known presence of God in their lives, it has an impact on the church that they're a part of. You say, how? It's very simple. 
Look at people who attend church who don't know the love and peace of God in their lives and tell me that that does not affect the countenance and the spirit of a church body. I mean, all you got to do is look at people who don't know the love and peace of God in their lives and they're miserable individuals. And whenever they are miserable individuals, they bring that miserable spirit and attitude into the church family, but they act like it's not going to cause any problems. Friends, how could we be any more ignorant? I'm just saying every one of us can know the love and peace of God. He'll be with us. He'll accompany us. But in order for that to happen, there has to be maturity. Which means we have to be willing to fix what we know is wrong. We can't make excuses for it. We can't justify it like we talked about Sunday night. We can't try to declare ourselves right when we know we're wrong. No, if we're not willing to mend and repair what we know is messed up, we will never know the love and peace of God like we otherwise could. But he said this, it's not only the action of being perfect that is required, he said also to be of good comfort. To be of good comfort. What does it mean to be of good comfort? Well, the idea for some is this, that it means the idea of encouraging or strengthening one another to to, to comfort somebody. Well, that's good and, and that's appropriate in some settings and in some, some context. But the word comfort here also means this or, or has this, as I've said before, associated with it. The idea of instruction and teaching. You really can be comforted, can you not, by the instruction and the teaching of truth? So, so follow this. It's not just... You will know the love of God and the peace of God because you're perfect, because there's some spiritual maturity, but you also have to be willing to receive learning and instruction or teaching and instruction. Can I ask us a question tonight and us just again kind of answer this with, with some kind of honesty? How many of us tonight really believe we have all the answers to everything? Now, we wouldn't suggest such a thing. But you know how we often live in our lives? We do often live like we do have all the answers. And whenever we carry that attitude, guess what? We then don't allow ourselves to be taught anything. And we don't allow ourselves to be instructed in any kind of a way. When you and I do not have a teachable spirit, you know what we then convince ourselves of? We then convince ourselves that there's nothing wrong in our lives. And whenever we refuse to admit there's anything wrong in our lives, you know what it does? It stunts the spiritual maturity that needs to take place. 
If you and I want to know the love and peace of God in our lives, the spiritual maturity has to take place. And part of how the spiritual maturity takes place is for us to admit we don't know everything, and I could be taught something in that area, and I could learn something in that area, and I could use some instruction in that area, and and, and I'm not going to act like I've got all the answers. No, I'm going to allow myself to be a student and to be a pupil. But if we don't have a teachable spirit by way of an action, then we'll not have the reaction of the God of love and peace being with us. But notice what he said next in verse number 11. He said this, be of one mind. To be of one mind. Now again, who is he writing to? He's writing to a church family. He is writing to a church family made up of individuals. What does it mean to be of one mind? It means this, to be in agreement one with another. To be in agreement one with another. See, a a church body believes certain things. Does a church family believe certain things? Come on, a church body believes certain things. A church body stands for certain things. A church body says, this is what the Word of God says, and this is what we believe, and this is what we hold to. That's what a church family does, right? Okay, so in order for us to know the love of God and the peace of God, for Him to be with us in a way that is felt, in a presence that is known, you and I have to be in agreement one with another, not in every minute detail of life, but in the major doctrines and in the major teachings of the Word of God. Friends, there has got to be agreement. Two cannot walk together except they be agreed. There must be agreement. Now, why is that important? It's important for this reason. Sometimes you'll hear people say things like this. I don't really agree with everything down there. But oh well, I'm just going to keep going. we ever thought what that kind of attitude actually does for the church family they're a part of? I mean, apparently not everyone has, but I'm just saying that has an impact. So here's what they're doing. They're, they're attending someplace. They're going to this, this church with these body of believers that they don't agree with, and, and they don't buy into that, and they don't buy into that, and I don't buy into that, and I ain't doing that, and I ain't doing that. But hey, I'm going to keep going. I'm just going to go with my unteachable spirit. I'm going to go with my rebellious attitude. I'm going to keep going like I, I have nothing to learn, and I'm not going to develop in my spiritual life, but I think I'm going to know the love and peace of God in my life. No, you won't. I don't mean this to sound rude. I don't mean this to sound ugly. But if someone wants to know the love of God and the peace of God, in the areas that matter, in the areas that are biblical, in the matters that have some significance to it, a person needs to either be on board with it or to be out of it. It really is that simple. Either buy into this 
and be a part of it and be supportive of it or not. But if you're not going to be, expect the reaction to be a lack of knowing the presence of his love and peace. Because there cannot be disunity and still know the love and peace of God. Amen to that. So he says to be perfect, to be of good cheer, to be of one mind. And then he said this, live in peace. What does it mean to live in peace? The idea is this, to live in a state of harmony. All right? To live in a state of harmony. Well, how is that achieved? It's achieved in part by being in agreement on the majors and working for harmony in the minors. I'm just going to ask us a very simple question. Can you and anyone else in your life agree on everything every time? No. Truth be told, and I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Truth be told, a lot of us don't agree with who we used to be ourselves. So to assume that we're going to always agree with everyone all the time, that's absurd. The person you should love the most, that being your spouse, you see some things differently, don't you, by way of point of view from time to time? All right, some of us do. So in those moments, what do you have to do? You have to choose to pursue harmony. We disagree. We don't see things the same. We don't see things eye to eye. But this is not one of those issues worth fighting over. What are you and I supposed to be doing in the church family? What are you and I supposed to be doing in this church body? Well, besides being of one mind, where there are differences, we should be striving for harmony. So they do that, and it's a little bit different than me. That's fine. They do that, and it's a little different than me. Whatever. It's not a major. That is a minor. So therefore, I'm not going to make a major out of the minor. It's just not worth it. But how many of us have ever heard stories like this, where people in the church began quarreling over things that were absolutely insignificant? And what did it do? It completely robbed the individual of the presence of the love and peace of God. And it destroyed the presence of God's love and God's peace in that church family. We've all heard churches who have split over the color of carpet or the color of drapes or what side they were going to put the piano on in the auditorium. I mean, these are things that are absolutely ridiculous. We've all heard of stories about this family in the church who is at odds with this family in the church, and it boiled down to this because this kid didn't get invited to a birthday party or this kid felt shunned from this or this you know, husband said this to this person's wife, and it was completely just, well, I didn't appreciate it. And, and, and it's little things that allow 
allow themselves to become big things. Why? Because they're not working to have that peace and that harmony. In the church family, we just need to be reminded we don't always have to be right. And we can sure argue and squabble and fuss over some dumb things sometimes. It's just not worth it. So here's Paul, and what did he say? He said, here is what is available, believers in Corinth, that the God of love and peace can be with you, accompany you. It doesn't get any, it doesn't get any better than that. To know his affection, his goodwill, his kindness, his calm, his tranquility, his rest, his peace. Boy, it just it doesn't get any better than that. But that doesn't happen on accident. You have to be perfect. You have to be of good comfort. You have to be of one mind, and you have to live in peace. Can I just ask us to consider something tonight? Just, it's just a few questions, and then we're done. As we look at our spiritual lives, do we see spiritual maturity taking place? Do we see spiritual growth taking place where we can really mark and identify God has done this and God has done that and God has accomplished this in my life? Can we really see that or are we still the person who doesn't have the teachable spirit? Are we still the person who thinks we know everything and so therefore nobody can teach us anything, at least from the spiritual perspective? You know, I mean, I know some people are, oh, no, I've got great respect for this person. I'd listen to anything they had to say. Okay, how about on things that matter in eternity? Somebody who could give some spiritual counsel. Do you, do you have a, a teachable spirit in your spiritual life? Are you in agreement? in the majors in striving to make peace on the minors those things have to be in place if we're going to know the love and peace of God in our lives if those things are not in place not only will you not know it for yourself it will be a detriment to this church family If there is a reaction for every action, then why wouldn't we do everything we could to get the best possible reaction from our actions? That would make the most sense, wouldn't it? All right. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. Lord, I don't know how you would speak to hearts. I don't know how you might convict, how you might encourage. I don't know, but I do pray that you would work. God, I pray that you'd help us to see that we don't just wake up one day knowing your love and knowing your peace. There are some things we have to do to obtain that. I pray that you'd help us to be honest to see whether or not we're doing it. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.